You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard, the podcast that asks the question, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate 7? And my name's Ian Bridgman. My name is Elena Falco. And um, what are we going to be talking about today, Elena? We're going to be talking about numbers, uh, whether they exist. I mean, they do exist, but how they exist, what kind of uh, entity they are, essentially. Um, but before we do this, mm-hmm. I would like to do our first shout out. Ooh. We have a listener to shout out at, to, uh, for, from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of these and more. And more. <laughs> Through. Um, <laughs> so um, this person who goes by the Twitter name of Stephen Out of Context has recommended us on Twitter. Thank you very much. And calling us, um, by calling us, and I quote, criminally undersubscribed. And I feel very represented by this label. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> it's almost a backhanded compliment. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to take it in the spirit intended. Thank you, Stephen, out of context. I think I think it was lovely, you know. you know, It's not like those kind of smarmy compliments you get. Like, I love you, you're great, I want you to have my babies. I think this is very good. Mm. And I'm thinking I should have a T-shirt made with it. Because I feel like it's one of those things that apply to other things in life as well, you know. Do you think you are generally criminally undersubscribed? I think so. I think it represents me. And (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, also I was thinking, you know how people put quotes on things, right? I feel like depending on the substrate on which the quote is put... That kind of says something about how important that quote is to them. So, like, for instance, if something was really important to me, I would, you know, have a tattoo with it. Yeah, true. I'm afraid, sorry, Stephen, but this doesn't qualify for tattoo level. (laughs) But T-shirt is just right below in my scale. I'm thinking before that, like, kind of lower than that, it could be, like, fridge magnets. Yeah, that's definitely on the the scale of substrates if we're going to use your term <laughs> uh, would you have a tattoo of the word substrate no okay just checking it would be very meta though it would be terribly meta because the substrate would be my skin so it would label the substrate mm. wow i'm boring myself with this um <laughs> so yeah so or or you know you know what's even is i don't know if it's lower or higher the kind of giant distressed wood letters that people spell things out of for their houses, like yes. love. Mm. Where is that? Is that like below or above T-shirt? Uh, I think that's below fridge magnet. Yeah, that is below fridge hey, magnet. Because and most of those things, it's just it means very little. I want to. I want to get one little uh, little behind the scenes uh, thing. Uh, Eleanor and I live together. Ooh, a scandal. I want to get one that says, like, arse <laughs> or fart. And put, to put where? Uh, anywhere. But I, I want to see if people notice. Yeah. Or whether pe- at this point in time people have become blind to the sort of artisanal effect lettering that seems to have popped up in people's houses. Yeah. Another one that would be great to have spelled out would be, instead of, you know, they normally are quite strong words like love, believe. Mm. We could have like fondness, or yes. or uh, understatement. 
I like that. But maybe that should be big. Yes. In big, big letters for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when we went to uh, Home Bargains in Wantage, which is uh, for the benefit of the listener, this is Ian's uh, hometown. It's in the glorious Oxfordshire. Yes. And we went to the bathroom section and someone had spelled poop with letters. Yeah. That was one of the best moments I've had in Wantage. <laughs> it's one of the best moments you had that year, I think. The oh, way yeah. you reacted to it, you were just overjoyed. And it was the year we got engaged, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Anyway, shall we leave it at that? Thank you, Stephen. And everyone else... If you want to have your quote featured on our bodies or in our shared <laughs> soon-to-be marital home on, you know, a variety of substrates, could be a, a cross-stitch mm. in the hallway, for instance, you can get in touch with us you on can. Twitter at WonderCovered. On Instagram at WonderCovered Podcast. You can search for us on Facebook. Just search for WonderCovered and we'll pop up. And also at uh, wandercover.com. You can email us, hello at wandercover.com. Yes. You can also suggest topics and, you know, tell us that we are wrong or mm. terrible. Yeah. We, we won't mind. <laughs> so anyway, let's get down to business. Number um, business. Yeah. So today we're talking about numbers, what they are, how they work. So how would you define the word number uh i mean they're things you, that you can count with yeah um they're useful for remembering all the for describing how many things there are sure um i mean i'm struggling if i'm honest yeah it, it is kind of a... i don't like them i've never got on that well <laughs> with them to be honest i mean i'll use them in a pinch but i'm i, I love a calculator yeah i just keep those numbers as far away from me as possible so it is kind of difficult to define exactly what a number is because we have a kind of intuitive understanding of what a number is, right? Because we just grow up with them. So in my quest for writing the worst opening for a podcast ever, I looked up the definition on the Oxford Dictionary, Encyclopedia Britannica and Merriam-Webster Dictionary and found them all quite unsatisfying Oxford Dictionary and Encyclopedia Britannica give definitions that are tautological, which means that they kind of go back to themselves in the following way. On the Oxford Dictionary, for instance, a number is, and I quote, an arithmetical value. Then, obviously, if you don't know what a number is, you probably don't know what arithmetical means, right? Mm. So you look up arithmetical, which leads you to arithmetic. Sorry, arithmetic, <laughs> um, which is, and I quote, the branch of mathematics dealing with the properties and manipulations of numbers. Thank you very fucking much, Mr. Oxford Dictionary. <laughs> so this is not very useful. The other definitions are not very useful either. And this is normally an indication that something... If, if you want to know more about that word, it's not about the definition, but it's more about the concept, which is what philosophers deal with. So we ask ourselves, are numbers real? In what sense? What are they made of? This kind of question, which 
which are, and please don't panic, metaphysical questions. I think the best way to start thinking about this is to ask the following question. Are numbers discovered or created? Of course, philosophers have opinions about this as about everything else. Yeah, don't I know it. <laughs> Let's start from the discovery camp. People in this camp, loosely speaking, will maintain that numbers are in nature and that they are special in that they are immaterial. You can't smash anyone's head with 34 or tickle anyone's feet with the square root of 2. And they exist regardless of the material world. If the universe collapsed tomorrow, it would still be true that 10 plus 5 equals 15. Right. Yeah, let me just double check that because we are fact uh, checkers. We are <laughs> very uh, precise on this podcast. Uh, just give me a moment. Just typing that into Google. Yeah. Uh, yep, 15, that is correct. Very Continue. good. Thank you. Verified. <laughs> Stamp. Stamp. There's, there's something else in this as well. As we learn maths as children, we don't have to learn all numbers one by one, right? We learn the rules that regulate them, which are also the rules um, to find new numbers. You may learn the basics, like what some numbers are called, and even then you learn conventions about how to call them, so that every time you see a new number, you don't have to look it up in like a number dictionary or something. So, you know, I know that one is a number that denotes a certain um, quantity, I know that two is also a number that denotes a certain quantity, and I know that it's a, ours is a positional system, so if I put one and two together, that means 12, because one symbolizes 10 and two symbolizes two. Right. Correct? Okay. And let me just put that into Google to check. <laughs> and it's correct. I will be Googling everything that you say from now on. It, it sounds... so if you hear constant typing in the background, that's right. me. You're not saving the world through hacking. Well, that too, actually. <laughs> it's all going on over here, let me tell you. You're a busy man. I am busy. Um, okay, so in order to proceed, we have to get a definition out of the way. Numbers are those entities that maths deals with. The representation of them, the symbol you know them by, which can change widely depending on places and times. We use the Arabic notation. Uh, Romans used symbols that looked like uppercase uh, letters to us. Egyptians used uh, hieroglyphs and so forth. So these are called numerals and they are not the number. So what we're going to talk about is what is referred to by the numerals. Mm -hmm. So if the numer numerals are labels on a jar, we want to know what's in the jar. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and on that subject, can you stop putting just three on a jar? Because I don't know whether it's safe to eat or whether it's one another one of your experiments. <laughs> so numbers are infinite, and yet they are precise. They refer to a specific thing, right? They feel a bit like a world to explore whose bounds we can't see. So according to the discovery camp, they are beyond space and time and beyond our minds. Even if we weren't around to believe in numbers, they would still be there. One argument to support this goes like this. Let's go back to the time before humans appeared and count dinosaurs. Say we have 24 dinosaurs. That's a lot of dinosaurs. I know, 
Sarah is the party? Yeah. So if numbers are a human creation, then numbers didn't exist, right? Mm. Mm, because the Flintstones are not real. <laughs> Blimey, okay, this got heavy, but fine, carry on. <laughs> so, so this implies, according to this argument, that saying there were 24 dinosaurs is meaningless because 24, which is a number, didn't exist back then. This sounds absurd because there were 24 dinosaurs. Hence, numbers must have already existed before humans. Yes. Do you see a problem with this? I do see a problem with that. What is the problem with that? I didn't expect a follow-up question. (laughs) What is the problem with that? (laughs) <laughs> Can I tell you, I mean, to be honest with you, you said 24 dinosaurs and I had an amazing idea for a spin-off of 24, except Jack Bauer is a dinosaur and he has to save the world from a comet in uh-huh. 24 hours. Spoiler alert, he doesn't succeed. Uh-huh. But my God, he has an entertaining and thrilling time <laughs> trying. It sounds amazing. What kind of dinosaur is he? I think uh, Jack Bauer is a raptor. A velociraptor, Ooh, probably. Nice choice. Because it's sort of kind of a bit lean, a bit kind of he's got fight mm. in his eyes. It's not going to be a diplodocus, is he? Yeah. To be honest. Is Bruce Willis going to feature? Um, I mean, he didn't feature in the TV series, but there's no reason why he couldn't feature in this. I think he should. What would Bruce Willis be? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? T-Rex? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the diplodocuses still exist. Are they? I mean, obviously they don't exist. No, yeah. But are they? Were they ever a thing? Is it one of those dinosaurs which now? Oh does, God! Because there is now this tragic thing whereby when we grew up, mm. there was a whole load of dinosaurs like that we just took for granted. Yeah. Now they've uh, there's a whole bunch of dinosaurs that are new. Yeah. They didn't yeah. didn't exist when we still didn't. Ex- you know what I mean? <laughs> and now there's dinosaurs that I took to my heart as being mm. like a proper dinosaur. They're, then they turned out to be two fossils accidentally stuck together. Oh, that's. I mean, I still have to recover from the fact that some dinosaurs had feathers, which mm. I think is wonderful. Like it sounds like just like the the most camp uh, prehistory imaginable. But I just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they As all a, got a bit more Elton John once they started talking about feathers, didn't it? I know, right? It's also glittery now. It used to be like <laughs> prehistory used to be brown in mm. my head. No, it's more like 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 a wham video. Mm, I love it. Yeah. So anyway, back to the question: uh, What's the problem? Uh, no, it's something about twenty-four dinosaurs <laughs> with with a dinosaur party. Um, well, the the problem, as I see it, because some people take this argument and go, "Yes, that makes sense." It doesn't make sense to me because no one was around to count them. That's it. Like. It's not like saying that there weren't 24 dinosaurs. They were there. It's just that no one was there to say that there were 24. I mean, for that matter, no one was there to say that there were dinosaurs either, but there were still dinosaurs, right? Just because the concept of something didn't exist, it doesn't mean that it couldn't have applied. Mm. You see what I mean? Yeah. Like, there were leaves. No one was around going, oh, there are leaves on trees. But there were. I think. I don't know. Is that also wrong at this point? I just, I don't know. But anyway, you see my point. <laughs> there were, no, I'm sure there were leaves. There were leaves. There's definitely leaves. Few. 
There are also Flintstones, but since you've come out as a Flintstones <laughs> denialist, I am going to uh, just leave that subject. <laughs> okay, so let's let's leave the dinosaurs behind. Um, let's say that numbers are out there, abstractly. Okay. Um, to be found and studied because we do study numbers in very sophisticated ways, right? Like mathematicians do. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I can barely work Excel. But so there are two questions. One is, where are they? Where are numbers? Where are numbers? And the second question, which is a bit more pressing, is how do we know them? Right? Guess who had an answer for both those questions in one double whammy? Uh, Andrew Ridgely? The other one. George Michael? The other one. Well, there were only two people in Wham. Plato. Oh. It was the, the silent, <laughs> the, the, silent he on, Wham. He was on keyboards. Yeah, yeah. everyone knows that, Ian. <laughs> Break me up before you Plato. <laughs> that that was one no of their sense. songs, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, so Plato, uh, who was a clever man, had this theory that numbers indeed existed in an abstract world, which was called the hyperuranian, which didn't contain just numbers. Um, the hyperuranian contained all the blueprints for everything that exists. So for mountains, for people, for chairs, and people who like to make fun of Plato at his time used to say that there are blueprints also for things like poo and mold and that kind of thing. Which To which Plato presumably said, yes. Yeah, exactly. Like He didn't <laughs> see the problem with it, but everyone else was like, oh, there's a, there's a blueprint for poo, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Um, this was the level of debate in ancient Greece, mm. as we all know. So there is this this abstract world, right, that has no immediate contact with our material world. At the same time, he believed in reincarnation. So he believed that we are all souls in temporary bodies, which is a familiar concept if yeah. you're in the West. Um. So these souls would become embodied and then when the body dies, the soul would go back to this abstract world, also known as the world of ideas, which is a bit more tongue-friendly than hyper-Iranian. And they would just float about in this, uh, in this abstract world and they would see the blueprints for everything that exists. And they would also see abstract concepts, like numbers. Um, and they would learn them. And then when they would reincarnate, they would forget. So your soul has seen all this before you were born, but has forgotten by being embodied. And so knowing things is trying to remember what you've seen before you were born. Okay. Um, that, I mean, this aligns very well with Doctor Who's regeneration. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there. That is so true. Yeah. Where does Doctor Who go between regenerations? Uh, that is not covered. He doesn't really seem to go anywhere. He pretty much in there's no gap. Right. He regenerates immediately um, from one incarnation to the next. 
retaining some memories, but not all. Oh. Um, yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so so this is this is a sort of access you would have in a in a platonic world to numbers. So to Plato, numbers are something that uh, we saw and understood when we were in the world of ideas. Yeah. Then when we were born, we forgot about them. But in learning, in kind of growing up and learning about the world, we remember what numbers are. Yes. And that's how we know how to use them, what they mean, that yeah. sort of thing. We've actually just remembered something that we perfectly understood when we were floating around in the abstract yes. bit before we were incarnated. Exactly. So, so knowing is not making stuff up or coming up with things, but try to remember things. Okay. Of course, this reincarnation story is not very mainstream anymore. So if you don't want to buy into that, you have to still explain how we know numbers, mm. right? Why do we have a special relation with numbers is the question. A lot of people believed and still believe that um, God would have a role in this so that numbers have some kind of divine quality and that uh, they are revealed to us. Mathematician Georg Cantor, who was the creator of set theory, which is one of the fundamental theories in mathematics, believed that God was revealing mathematics to humankind through him, that he was chosen for that purpose. He thought of himself as essentially a prophet. This belief that numbers are discovered and out there often goes hand in hand with the idea that the world is constructed by numbers. In this sense, science is decoding a universe written in mathematical language. If this sounds familiar, that is because we have already covered this in our first episode, which you have surely listened to. Um, <laughs> if by accident you haven't listened, uh, oh, episode Ian. one of Wonder Covered is about Galileo, who is a very interesting man. Yes. Uh, and you should listen to it. So Galileo believed in this, believed that he was decoding a universe written in mathematical language but that that is also the belief is also common amongst uh christian physicists uh nowadays it's not that outrageous a belief so if the universe is constructed by numbers then some kind of divinity must have done so like whatever makes up the universe with numbers you have to call that a god somewhat or you know you could call that a computer wink wink matrix wink uh, but we'll get back to the whole simulation thing at some point, I promise. So in this sense, numbers are discovered as the fabric of the universe. They were already there and we just tapped into it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we call this the platonic camp. I went to platonic camp once and let me tell you, I didn't get a lot of action. <laughs> Um, the opposite camp, according to which numbers are created, hops over the question of how we know numbers are real with a neat jump. We know them because we made them. Easy enough. According to this view, people made numbers for practical purposes. Numbers are constructed, to use the exact word. So to them, numbers, they're not 
a real thing. They don't exist in nature. It's something that humans have come up with. Yeah, there's still... Like sitcoms. Yes. And in fact, one of the movements within the constructivist camp is called fictionalism for, for, this, very, for this very reason. It doesn't mean that they don't exist as such. They just have an existence that is not uh, necessary and it's not an absolute existence. It's a, it is a contingent existence. So something that is necessary, something that is eternal, uh, that humans have nothing to do with, um, while something that is contingent is just something that can start at a certain point and end at a certain point. So in this sense, they are real just in a more modest way. Mm -hmm. This view emerged as a result of paradoxes being discovered in mathematics. In fact, if mathematics as a whole were out there to be explored, it should be consistent, right? Well, a paradox is essentially an inconsistency within mathematics. You can think of it this way. If mathematics were a landscape that we were walking around, finding trees and mountains and describing the relations between them, it would be very odd to find that a rock is both there and not there, right? Well, if we were making up a landscape as we went along, based on shared rules, it would be possible and acceptable to create variations in the landscape that don't quite add up. Someone might decide that the rock should be there while others will disagree, and that would be okay. This is more or less the reasoning here. If numbers were just out there, we wouldn't find unsolvable conflicts within arithmetics. Within this perspective, maths has to be understandable by human minds. So the actual practice of mathematicians needs to steer away from anything that humans can't conceive of, such as paradoxes. This means that constructive mathematics is all about finite integers, so numbers that we can express without needing fractions like 34 or minus 3,567, but not pi, for instance. Numbers are products of our mind and do not exist outside of us. This theory was introduced at the beginning of the 20th century and generated a fair amount of conflict between mathematicians and philosophers of maths. The biggest controversy involved Lutzen Egbertus Jan Brauer, the founder of Intuitionism, uh, which is another branch of the constructivist uh, camp, and his opponent, David Hilbert. It was a fairly polite controversy, which mainly unraveled through conference papers, but a forceful one nonetheless, and it lasted for the whole of the 1920s. And I say to you, sir, 12? 46! <laughs> say, <laughs> let's retire for brandy. <laughs> Wonder covered. So I ask you, sir, which of these positions is right? We can look outside theoretical considerations, perhaps, and see what evidence we can find to support either position. A good way to see whether something is out there instead of just being a product of my imagination is asking others, do they see that too? Or in other words, are numbers universal? It seems so. There is anecdotal evidence of people making up their own maths, for instance, without being taught. A famous example was the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. 
he was homeschooled and his dad didn't teach him mathematics because he thought it would distract him from studying humanities. And yet Blaise made up his own numerals and basically reconstructed maths from scratch. In fact, so his dad was correct. Yeah, it would distract it, it, him. It, it, maths massively distracted Blaise <laughs> Pascal from the humanities. Yes. Um, it, it's just that his dad couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't invent one of the first calculators, so, you know. It just goes to show that abstinence doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Education is the way. <laughs> so, yeah, so back to maths. Numbers emerged historically in different places at different times. It is difficult to piece together the history of numbers. So I'll just give a few points of reference just to give you an idea. Numbers seem to have started with counting. People started keeping tallies to mark the passage of time or remember quantities of items. One of the oldest tools clearly used to do this is a bonobo bone with 21 notches found in the Libombo Mountains uh, between South Africa and uh, Switzerland. It dates back to around 37,000 years ago. The person who put those notches on the bone was a Cro-Magnon, that's the same people to whom we owe um, cave paintings, uh, such as the ones found in Lascaux in France. Uh, you know, the ones with the big bison being, or whatever, big animal being hunted, yeah. um, that kind of thing. It's pretty badass. It is badass. And I have a fun fact about this. Okay. So these animals have always been interpreted as depictions of animals. But actually they might be representations of star system. Oh, right. So they might be the oldest star atlases known to us. So what you're saying is that what we thought were like badass hunters who are writing down records of their amazing kills were actually star nerds. Yes. Great, love it. <laughs> so let's go back to numbers because we are not hunters. For scale... So this happened, the Labamba bone happened 37,000 years ago, more or less. The wheel was invented 4,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, beer, 6,000 years ago. So what you're saying is that there's never been a time when you couldn't drink drive. Exactly. Okay. That's also much earlier than writing. So there was a time when you couldn't text your ex when drunk. <laughs> Writing started to appear 3,400 years ago. You're welcome. So the Libomba bone is a counting stick. Counting sticks have been used until recently by people who can't count. For instance, an enumerate shepherd could put a mark on the stick for each of their sheep at the beginning of the day and check back that all sheep were still there at the end by making sure that each notch corresponded to a sheep. So effectively, you're delegating the counting to an object. In some cases... A bit like me with the calculator. <laughs> that, that is actually what it is. Mm. In some cases, mediated counting is considered necessary for symbolic reasons as well. Um, in some African traditions, it is believed that counting possessions might put them at risk of destruction. So an aid is used the way our imaginary shepherd would do. This kind of taboo on counting is found everywhere and throughout history. I think it's a similar principle to how I will not look at my bank balance. And I'm, I'm not broke yes. until I look at my <laughs> bank balance. <laughs> so another example of this 
is uh, in the Jewish liturgy, um, in which 10 men have to be present in order to start some kinds of service. They are, however, not counted. A 10-word sentence is recited, and each man corresponds to a word. That way you are technically not counting. In some sense, the sentence is counting. Also, of course, there are taboos on specific numbers that are considered unlucky, like the number 13 in the Anglophone world. And fun fact, 17 in Italy. Hmm. Not many people know this. Why is that? It's not really clear. Um, One of the um, hypotheses is that if you write out 17 in Roman numerals, that basically is an anagram of the word vixi, which means I have lived, which implies that I'm dead. So it's bad luck because of that. That to me seems a bit far-fetched. That is more obscure and far-fetched than the fictional conspiracies in a Dan Brown book. Yes. And that is saying something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just, I don't buy that. But people do believe in it. And um, Friday the 17th is considered really unlucky, a bit like oh. Friday 13th in, in America and such. There we go. Yeah. So let's, let's talk more about bones. Let's. <laughs> A more sophisticated tool than the Lebomba bone is the object known as the Ishanga bone, which was found in Congo. It dates back to around 25,000 years ago. And it looks like a tool. Uh, we're not really sure what it was for, but it has a handle. It's made of bone and a piece of quartz attached to one end. So the main bit could have been used as a scarification tool, but the handle is the part that is interesting for us. Um, It presents clusters of horizontal lines organized in three columns. The central column shows clusters of a given number and its double. So, for instance, a cluster of three lines and then a cluster of six lines, while the side ones may be representing prime numbers. Obviously, we can't know exactly how it was used and there is speculation about its nature, but it is quite an impressive object. It is believed that these bones were not isolated examples either. Some counting sticks could have been made on perishable materials, such as wood and animal skin, and as such wouldn't be available for us to see. Several numeration systems have developed and been used in Africa since, based on practical needs. Let's move to other parts of the world. In East Asia, the history of maths is really patchy and not much is known that relates to the period before 100 BC. But we do know that it arose to deal with practical problems related to the calendar, uh, government records, taxes, commerce, buildings, and all that. The Chinese mathematical characters were used in the whole area, including modern Vietnam, Japan, and Korea. Counting boards based on rods were used to perform calculations. It was a place-based system, and it involved uh, decimals. Australia. Whoosh. Whoosh. For a long time, it was believed that Aboriginal Australians don't have a number system. And when I say it was believed, I mean it was believed by Westerners, because (laughs) Aboriginal Australians knew exactly what they were doing. (laughs) So they thought that they they couldn't count, essentially, or that they had just uh, not very many numbers. Uh, up to 10 or 20, but that turned out to be false. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. 
So numbers are everywhere you can see. Some think that this is reflected in our brain. One interesting claim is that the regions of the brain whose job is to process numbers seem to be relatively stable across time. In other words, humans are keeping the parts of our brain that deal with numbers. This conclusion comes from the fact that words for low numbers seem to remain the same for a long time, between 10,000 and 100,000 years, which is between 3.5 and 20 times longer than other kinds of words. This happens at least in Indo-European, Bantu and Austronesian families of languages, uh, while research in other languages is um, underway. Neuroscientists have pinned down a specific area of our brain that deals with numerosity, so the ability of use numbers, allowing us to estimate quantities without counting. It's a small area in the right superior parietal lobe. So that's somewhere above your right ear. So next time I'm like in an airport or like at a fair or something and it's like, guess how many sweets are in the jar? Guess how many balloons are in the mini? I know that my, excuse me, right superior parietal lobe is failing to win me that competition. Yes. Yes. You can take it out on it. <laughs> so this is for humans. Let's look at animals. Some animals can actually count. Rhesus monkeys uh, can count objects on a screen, but also sounds. Female lions can estimate the number of members of a rival group based on their roaring and decide how to behave accordingly. Same goes for hyenas. Bees can measure the distance from the hive using the number of landmarks they have gone past, at least up to four. So does that mean that they also have access to abstract entities? Or do they have the ability to count that extends to what is necessary for their specific needs? One interesting case is that of dogs. They can only count up to one, so that means telling whether something is there or not there. Oh, bless them. I know, right? That's so sweet. <laughs> I'm going to count my things, my my bones. One. I have a bone! <laughs> I'm going to count my frisbees. I don't have any frisbees. Oh. <laughs> the counting life of dog. <laughs> yes, that's dogs. And we ruined them because wolves actually have better counting skills. <laughs> Which, yeah, suggests that dogs just didn't keep them because they were not necessary to them. Unfortunately, this doesn't clarify much. On one hand, it solves a problem for Platonists. Namely, we can say that, of course, numerosity is universal because numbers are out there in an abstract form. Then the question is, how do we know them? If we have a bit in our brain that is somehow attuned to them, then it may seem that we have found at least the tool we used to find out. On the other hand, this can also play well for constructionists. If numbers are so useful to everyone, it makes sense that those of us who were bad at using them were selected out. Fair enough. Basically, the people that goes, oh, I've got nothing to worry about. There's only one lion. <laughs> oh, no, there were six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Let's talk about the relation between numbers and material reality. That includes objects and our bodies. Let's start from objects. We saw that tools have been used as counting aids for a very long time. 
And as you said, we still do use calculators. But they have quite a strong relationship with our ability to count as well. An interesting study was done in the 60s involving people from the Capel community in West Africa, Liberia and Guinea. The most common way of counting among them was by stacking stones. And in fact, they were much better at estimating the amounts of stones in a stack than Yale graduates. Same with the numbers of grains in a jar of rice, because measuring rice was part of their daily lives. So if you want to win a mini in an airport by guessing how many balloons are inside it, make sure you have a member of the Capella community with you. They'll smash it. Mm. That might reduce the value, but... (laughs) Um, Using your body to count is also a very widespread practice. You use your fingers to count when you're a child... And sometimes also (laughs) later. Um, That's not just the support to counting. You count with your body. And that also seems to happen in various places and times in history. So this is a case of embodied cognition. The idea that your mind alone is not responsible for thinking. Your body is involved too. This concept is actually used in teaching. For instance, ropes on giant grids. I've seen photos. They are amazing. And they are used to make sense of geometrical properties. So you kind of tense and release the rods. And that shows you how um, the properties of shapes change. Cool. It's quite cool. Also related to the, if I may, I would like to defy a common misconception. (laughs) Go ahead. You have the... You have the common misconception uh, defying flaw. Thank you. You're not flawed. You have a flaw. Thank you. A common explanation of the reason why we count in base 10 is that we have 10 fingers. Let me just Google that for verification. (laughs) 10 fingers. Yes, that is correct. Thank you. Something that the Roman numeral for five, which resembles an uppercase V in the Latin alphabet, which is the one we Europeans use, is a visual representation of an open hand, because apparently Romans were Balkans. However, the base 10 is not the only base ever used by humankind. The pair system in which you go one, two, one and two, two, two and so forth, is used all over the place in Oceania, Indigenous communities in South America use systems in base 3, 4, and 5, and sometimes combined with a system in base 20. And, spoiler alert, these people have 10 fingers too, on average. Systems in base 6 and 12 are also found um, in Africa, and some are still used in the West for certain measurements, like inches in a foot, ounces in a pound, and whatever the fuck was going on with shillings in the 60s. In fact, there are historical examples of different systems in different bases used in the same place for different uses. That happened extensively among the Sumerians, who had a different system in each city, and within the same city, you'd use a different base depending on what you needed it for, for you know, weighing grains or calculating units of time and so forth. That sounds very complicated to me. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was quite amazing, actually. So what does this all mean? It might either mean that numbers are useful for everyone and that's why we all have a somewhat similar way of approaching the issue of quantities. In this case, it would be a case of almost convergent evolution. Same problem, how many sheep 
cow's bags of rice should I bring home tonight? Similar solution. Or it might be that we are peering into an abstract realm and people have historically walked different paths to get there and come up with different ways to represent and make use of that knowledge. The facts alone don't give an answer, only clues to work with using our own reasoning. I'm more of a constructivist myself, so I tend to think that we come up with maths, which did take a life of its own somewhat. But I am a respectful constructivist. <laughs> um, so I'm happy to have my mind changed if someone convinces me. Hello at wandercupboard.com <laughs> if you want to do some convincing. Oh my God, no. <laughs> and uh, yes, pl please do send me your um, meaningless rounds. <laughs> okay, shall we do the references? Yeah, let's do the references. And now, the references. This time, there is no main source. So they're all a bit scattered, so I'll put a list on the website as usual, but... Just to credit people for information. Um, as ever, brilliant source for philosophy is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is online and free and written by professionals. In this case, relevant pages are Constructive Mathematics by Douglas Bridges and Eric Palmgren, and Platonism in the Philosophy of Mathematics by Austin Linebo. That's where I got a lot of information from. As you can tell, I didn't go too much into detail earlier because I didn't want everyone's head to explode. But by all means, pour yourself a glass of whiskey or cauliflower water or whatever youth drink nowadays. <laughs> Breathe deep and get in. It's absolutely fascinating. For a later treatment, you can read Steve Patterson's essay, The Metaphysics of Mathematics. It's very enjoyable and paints a picture. The dinosaur example was mentioned by Mark Iago, in a video. Other sources I used are a book called um, Africa Counts by Claudia Zaslaski, which is about the history of numbers in Africa. Um, some useful documents from the University of St. Andrews. Several articles from a special issue of the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B on numerical abilities published last year. So this is from a, from a biological perspective because that's a biological publication. Anyway, look up the website if you're interested. Wondercupboard.com. We put all the references there. If you're interested in finding out more about the things we're talking about, there's a ton of links. Yeah. And you can just click on them and start reading. It's good. I'd like to add a reference this week. Yeah. Uh, for um, a key text in me learning about numbers. Yes. Uh, which is the animation from Sesame Street <laughs> with the pinball machine, which I was fascinated by because it's like... <laughs> pinball and like a ball going through like spirals and loops uh, which I'm now going to sing for you uh, the song goes a little something like this 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 do, 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 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 do, do, do. it's amazing uh, and there is a link to that on the website as well uh, it is an important resource and, and, and a delightful uh, listen yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's wrap up. What have we learned today? Uh, today we have learned that if you want to win at a game of blackjack, make sure you're playing against a dog and not a wolf. <laughs> Wonder cupboard.
waiting for Ian to come up with a joke. It's gonna be a great joke, everyone. <sighs>